0: Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm St. John Flynn of Houston Public Media. And I'm Eric Skelly from ROCO, River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. And this time we're talking about Donizetti's Anna Berlena, Eric, which debuted in Milan in 1830. Right. And this is known as one of his Tudor Trilogy operas. Right.
1: Basically uh, focusing on three Tudor queens, although Mary Stewart is not... St- Technically. technically a tutor. But uh, but yeah, there's, there's Anna Boleyn, which is, of course, Anne Boleyn, Maria Stuarda, Mary Stuart, or Mary Queen of Scots, and Roberto Devereux, who was not a queen. But <laughs> but the central figure in that opera is, of course, Elizabeth I.
0: Right. Anna Bolena, then, based on a retelling of the story of Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII.
1: Right. And, you know, it's probably important to point out that now, of course, we have Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, and we have even the, the Showtime series, The Tudors, and all mm-hmm. of these, these things that basically have re-examined all of these characters, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and tried to bring them back to some semblance of historical accuracy. Uh, if you read David Starkey's history books, like The Six Wives, you really get a sense of who Anne Boleyn actually was. And she was no innocent by any stretch of the imagination. But what we have here with Donizetti is probably more in line with Hollingshed and Shakespeare's. Basically, they're they're trying to cast the Tudors in this sort of saintly light. And in the case of Anne Boleyn, this is the mother of Elizabeth I, who was Shakespeare's patroness. And so it was in his best interests to show this woman in, in the best of all possible lights. And consequently, she was kind of whitewashed. I mean, she was portrayed as an innocent, a martyr. You think of all the all the way recently the movie Anne of a Thousand Days with Jean-Viev Bujol, I say recently, we're talking nineteen seventies, shows how old I am. But even even at that point, they're still portraying her as this very innocent, noble martyr of a woman. The historical Anne Boleyn was not. (laughs) But this is not the historical Anne Boleyn, so you just have to sort of accept that
0: as the premise going in. In Donizetti's opera, this is basically Henry VIII finding a way to get rid of Anne Boleyn because he's in love with one of her ladies-in-waiting, Jane Seymour. Right. Having
1: um, actually gotten rid of his first wife to make way for Anne Boleyn, he's uh, kind, of work, kind of working his way through the ladies, in a sense.
0: Um, as part of his plan to get rid of Anne Boleyn, he brings back, having exiled him, he brings back Lord Percy to court. Yeah. Because Percy was in love with Anne Boleyn. hmm And apparently she with him, before... Henry VIII came along right. and plucked her from the multitude to be his second queen. Right. As the opera opens, we're at Windsor Castle outside of London, and there is already this buzz among the courtiers that Henry VIII has turned his attention away from Anne Boleyn and is in love with Jane Seymour. Right. And to that Atmosphere, in comes Anne Boleyn
1: herself, who is very sad of Mien, and who is, well, she's just, she's not in a good place. Her page and musician Mark Smeaton is trying to cheer her up,
0: but to to little avail. She asks him to, uh, to play the harp for her and sing, to raise everybody's spirits. She then makes a really interesting comment, almost as an aside, and she says that, The ashes of her first love are still burning. Ooh, that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is Percy. Right. And she's admitting that she still has feelings for Percy. Yeah. Which, of course, is precisely how Henry VIII is planning to dump her. Yes, set her up. Then Henry VIII himself enters uh, with Jane Seymour. And he tells her that she will soon have no rival, that the altar has been prepared for her. So Henry has already made the decision that he is going to marry Jane Seymour.
1: Yeah, and be rid of Anne one way or the other. Right.
0: In scene two, again, we're in the environs of Windsor Castle. And Lord Rochefort, who is Anne Boleyn's brother, George Boleyn, he meets and is surprised to meet Lord Percy. Who has been called back by the king, having formerly been exiled? Right, and who admits to Rochefort that he does still—he does in fact still
1: love Anne. He still has, you know, carries a torch for her.
0: And he also inquires: Is the queen happy with the king? And Rochefort says, "Love is never content." <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's an understatement. That's right. They're on the skids.
0: <laughs> right. Then the royal hunting party shows up, Right. and Percy gets nervous because he thinks that he'll get to see Anna again, his first love. And Henry and Anna enter and are surprised to see Percy, although I don't think Henry is that surprised because he's so brought much. him back. Not only that, but he tells his
1: lackey, Hervey, to kind of watch Percy and watch how he is around the queen, ostensibly to
0: gain evidence against her. And in fact, Henry doesn't let Percy kiss his hand, but he tells him that Anne has given him assurances that Percy is innocent, but that she still has feelings for him, because Henry is looking for them to get back together again so that he's got a reason to get rid of Anne Boleyn. Right. End of Act One. What was Scene Three of Act One is now often performed as a separate act and becomes Act Two. And so in Act 2, we are in the Queen's private apartments. And Smeaton, her page, has a miniature of her that he has taken, which has her portrait painted on it. They didn't have photographs in those days.
1: Oh, see now, in opera, that never ends well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So he has, Smeaton has taken this miniature of Anne, mm-hmm. because he's in love with her, and he's gazing at it, he kisses it, and he's singing of his love for her, etc. But then the Queen shows up with her brother, with George, Lord Rushford, right? and he is trying to persuade her to have an audience with Percy. And um, she doesn't want to,
1: because she's maintaining that she is the Queen of England, she's the wife of Henry VIII. She doesn't need to be hanging around this guy that she still has feelings for, and he has feelings for her. Nothing good's going to come of it, and boy, is she ever right.
0: (laughs) She ever right. Of course, as they walk in to the Queen's bedchamber, Smeaton is there, so he he runs and hides because he's not supposed to be there, certainly not with this miniature. This portrait, right. So he's able to hear everything that's going on. And as you said, Anne is quite adamant that she is Henry's wife, she's going to remain Henry's wife, and uh, that's all there is to it. Percy then shows up and learns that the Queen is not prepared to talk to him. (laughs) And so he reacts as most men would do, and that is he draws his sword and threatens to kill himself. Yeah, Well, you know,
1: (laughs) yes. I mean, who among us hasn't done that?
0: (laughs) There is a commotion because... Lord Rochefort rushes to prevent Percy from killing himself. And Smeaton hears this commotion and thinks that harm is being done to the queen. Yeah. And so he dashes out from his hiding place looking to defend the queen.
1: Right. And in the midst of all this commotion, Anne, of course, you know, sort of faints. And in, in comes Henry himself, to see all these men <laughs> in Anne's private apartments, and of course, you know, that's just it is exactly what he wanted to find. You know, this is exactly the position he wanted her to be in. And it doesn't matter how many people are protesting Anne's innocence. Henry is convinced he's got the evidence he needs, and this all leads to a huge, great big Donizetti finale. It begins with. Uh, Anne's line, ah, senyata, la mia sorte, My fate is sealed. And it's very rapid and it's very florid and it's very intricate and it'll get your blood pumping and it's a wonderful way to close the act.
0: So you've got Henry there, you've got Anne, you've got Percy, you've got George, George and Smeaton. Smeaton.
1: And the chorus. And the chorus as <laughs> well because
0: Henry actually summons his attendants and accuses Anne of having betrayed him. that these people have betrayed the king. Smeaton steps forward and says that's not true and tears open his tunic and says, kill me if I'm lying. As he rips open his shirt, the locket, the miniature of Anne Boleyn, falls to the ground at the king's feet. Well, of course it does. (laughs) (laughs) So... They're all in trouble, and the king orders them all to be dragged off to the Tower of London. Yeah. To the dungeon. Right. End of Act 2, or Scene Act 3. 2-ish. <laughs> scene 3 of Act 1. <laughs> For Act 2 slash 3, depending on which way you're going, right? we are in London, in the Queen's apartments. Anne is now under guard, and she's there with her ladies-in-waiting. And they are telling her to place her trust in God. And then Hervey, who is one of the courtiers. Henry's lackey. Henry's lackey. He is too. (laughs) (laughs) He is. He's a little weasel. He's Henry Smeaton. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) Hervey enters to let Anne know that the Council of Peers have summoned her ladies-in-waiting into its presence. And so they have to leave with Hervey. Jane Seymour then enters and tells Anne that there is a way for her to avoid being killed, and that is just to fess up, mm. plead guilty, and Henry will show you mercy. Which Anne, of course, is not going to do.
1: Right. Because, number one, she's, she believes her, I mean, she's, she's innocent, and number two, were she to do that, it would basically
0: delegitimize her daughter. Elizabeth I. That's true, yeah. She says that she's not going to do that. Furthermore, she hopes that her successor will wear a crown of thorns. And Jane says, well, that's me. That would
1: be me. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: and then Anna responds that Henry Eighth alone is the guilty party here. In other words... She's showing great magnanimity toward Jane. Indeed. The next scene is outside the hall where the Council of Peers is meeting. Apparently, Smeaton has said that Anne and Percy were getting back together again. He said that that they are guilty. And Hervey is now telling everybody, the other courtiers, that Anne is lost, that she's done for. Because of that. Of course, what's going on here is they're playing everybody. Henry and Hervey are playing everybody. They know that by bringing Percy back that Anne will be put in a difficult situation. Her brother will be put in a difficult situation. Smeaton will be put in a difficult situation. And here, in this difficult situation that Smeaton is in, he concocts this story saying that Yes, Anne and Percy are still in love with each other, etc., hoping that that will get her off. But of course, that's not what Hervey and Henry are looking for. Mm-mm. They have the opposite in mind. The trap being as well that Smeaton now thinks that he has saved the Queen's life by telling Henry and Hervey essentially what they wanted to hear. Not a Rhodes Scholar candidate, Smeaton. No. No. But he can play the harp well. Yeah, he can. (laughs) (laughs) To add insult to injury, Anne and Percy are brought in separately. And Henry says that Anne has been naughty with Smeaton. (laughs) (laughs) And that there are witnesses. (laughs) And he says that both Anna and Percy will die. Percy says, and I I, I guess this is (laughs) not meant to ingratiate himself with Henry, but he says, it is written in heaven that he and Anne are married. Oh, wow, that is
1: such the wrong thing to say at that moment. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
0: So should he be surprised when they're both led away by guards? Yeah,
1: and we do know historically that that the two of them, Percy and, and Anne, had pledged themselves to one another before... She before became, Henry came along before him yeah, before she became embroiled with the king,
0: then Jane Seymour comes in and she says to Henry that she does not want to be the cause of Anne's death. Henry says, "But nothing you can say will save Anne." Then hervey comes in with the news that Henry has been waiting for, and that is that the Council of Peers has dissolved the royal marriage, Henry's marriage to Anne mm. And Anne and her accomplices have been condemned to death. And then everybody asks Henry to be merciful, to show mercy, and he tells them all to leave. Get out of here. Pretty much.
1: Which sets up the last scene of the opera, which is, man, this is what we all come for. (laughs) This is what every soprano wants to sing this role to do. I mean, there, there's there's one scene earlier, right before they do that big finale in Act One, and you know, and Henry says something about uh, you know she'll she'll, have, she'll tell to the judges, basically is what he says to her, you know, when she's complaining about how he's treating her, and she and she has these this wonderful line, Judici adana, adana," and she keeps repeating it and repeating it more incredulously you know, judges for Anne. Anne, you <laughs> judge me. <laughs> and then they launch into the into the big ensemble. I mean, this is a great role for a singing actress, but it all leads up to this final scene, which is
0: her last hours in the Tower of London. Hervey comes in to Percy and uh, Lord Rushforth's cell, telling them that the king has pardoned them. Mm-hmm. And they ask about Anne. And Hervey says, no, she's still going to be executed. And they say, well, in that case, we're going to be executed as well. We're not going to accept the pardon. If you're going to kill Anne, you kill us. In Anne's cell, we have a classic Donizetti plot element, the mad scene. Yep. It
1: begins with um, this, this gorgeous aria, Al dolce guida Where I mean, as you say, she's basically lost her senses. I mean, all of it has just come pressing
0: down upon her and she's
1: lost her mind.
0: She's there with her ladies in waiting and they are concerned about her madness and her grief, etc. And she imagines in her delirium that it's her wedding day to the king. Right. And then she imagines that she sees Percy and she asks him to take her back to her childhood home. Then Percy and Rochefort and Smeaton are brought in to Anne's chamber. Smeaton throws himself at Anne's feet. He apologizes and says that he accused her of being unfaithful with Percy in the belief that he was saving her life. Again, not a (laughs) real candidate. (laughs) Anna, her response is in her delirium to ask him, why he's not playing his harp. Mm-hmm. And she sings this beautiful um, melody. It's, it's a
1: prayerly. Cello a mie lungi spasimi, which everybody will recognize as Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Mm-hmm. That's it's, it's
0: that tune. Which Donizetti used deliberately to underscore Anne's longing for home. This is when she is dreaming of being back in her childhood home. And everything, like the regret, everything that has happened to her, she just wants to go back to those days when life was simple. There's no place like home. So then you hear a cannon
1: fire outside. Boom! Yeah. And bells are ringing, and people are rejoicing, and it turns out that they're celebrating the marriage of Henry to Jane Seymour. And that snaps Anne out of it. Right. Brings the firing her. firing of that cannon. It brings, brings her, her back to a sense. Full focus to, to, to a sense of reality. And she gets to end the opera with this fiery cabaletta, Copia Iniqua, in which she says, I will not go to my death with hatred in my heart. I'm going to forgive these this couple so that I can go to, you know, I can meet my God with a clear conscience. But, but the, the music belies the words. I mean, she is angry. I mean, this is a fiery cabaletta, and it is a great way to the end of the opera. And it's just, this is one of those roles that every great singing actress wants to have a stab at. You know, Maria Callas, Joan Sutherland, Beverly Sills, Montserrat Caballé, Renata Scotto, you name it. Um, in modern times, Anna Netrebko and now Sandra Ravanovsky have all... Put their stamp on this role because it's, it's just so meaty and so rich, and and it's so gratifying for you know performers and audiences alike. She's defiant to the end. She is. She goes to the scaffold just spitting, you know, defiance at Henry, every step of the way.
0: So how does Anna Bellina compare in impact to Maria Stuarda? Well, I mean, they're, they're each of
1: them have these big dramatic moments. They're each meaty roles for a singing actress. Uh, Maria Stuarda has this wonderful meeting between uh, Mary Stuart and Elizabeth I, which of course never happened. <laughs> but they're, I mean, you know, they're they're there's it's it's almost like a dynasty catfight. You know, they're spitting invective at one another and. It's just—it's like uh, you know—it's almost like Dynasty. It's you know—it's it's soap operatic, but it's just great juicy drama.
0: In Maria Estuada, though, there is that an antagonism, that constant antagonism between Elizabeth and Mary. Yes. Whereas here, Anne it's and Henry. Jane. Oh well, the yeah, there's Jane, but
1: Jane is kind of an innocent here. I mean, yes, she is. There Henry isn't. is the villain. Right. Henry is the real villain. So you've got that antagonism. And similarly, in, in Roberto Devereux, you've got Elizabeth I, who's in love with this guy who keeps letting her down and you know, betraying her time and time again. And she, and again, boy, that's one that's got, got dramatic moments out the wazoo. But in Roberto Devereux also, I mean, Elizabeth I is just this fiery, regal, uh, marvelous portrayal, you know, for, you know, if somebody can handle the vocal requirements, which are ferocious. I mean, Beverly Sills talks about the fact that she basically shaved years off of her vocal longevity by singing it, you know, because it's so heavy and so florid at the same time. But <laughs> for a great singing actress, what fun and what fun for us in the audience.
0: Gaetano Donizetti's Anna Bolena. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly.